arts are everywhere and in everything. And there's a fascinating, unique person and story behind each one. And that's what the Arthropologist is all about. Exploring the arts, one unique person and one unique story at a time. I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm the Arthropologist. This episode is part two of a two-part interview with Jason Arkels, an American sculptor living and working in Florence, Italy. Let's shift gears a little bit. Talk yeah. about your books. You've got, um, I accidentally deleted some part of it, so I can't, I don't, I don't have the names of the, of, of both your books, but right. uh, if you, you talk about those two, and then uh, I read that you're working on a third one, and I want to know what the progress yeah. is on that. <laughs> okay, so the, so the books that I actually have done, uh, one was basically just um, a, it's, it's called uh, Sculpting from Life, a Studio Manual of the Site Size Method. And this was just to record for posterity uh, the experimental sculpture department uh, at Charles Cecil Studio and record what we had discovered and codified into a teachable uh, technique. Um, so it's, it is a, it's, it's a how-to manual of the site size method. I would love to do a second edition of it because I, you know, it's, it's self-published. I did it in 2006 or something like that. And that was kind of at the dawn of, of commercial, commercially available, you know, like uh, consumer, uh, available, uh, digital photography. And so the photos aren't the best and, and I mean, the information is good, but, uh, I'd like to, I'd like to update it and, and make a better book out of it. Uh, but that's available. And then um, uh, seven or eight years ago, I, I, I published a translation of the first sculpture manual written in Europe by Leon Battista Alberti in 1436. It's called De Statua in Latin or Della Statua in Italian. And he published uh, within a year of each other, uh, this book in both languages, both Latin and Italian. And a, an English translation hadn't been published in well over 50 years. And I thought it was high time because also uh, how it had been published in English was as an, a translation of an historical document. And, right, and so the translator really focused on getting the syntax exactly translated and translating it as a text rather than translating as a sculpture manual. It was written as a sculpture manual, right? Uh, Alberti wanted sculptors to read his book and learn from it. And it had never been translated in that way. It was translated as an historical document rather than as a sculpture manual. So, so I translated in a very easy to understand vernacular. I'm not worried about getting the exact translation from 15th century Italian exactly correct. You know, I, I speak in a vernacular. And then I also accompany the, the text with photographs of work that I produced relative to the text. Uh, you know, showing examples of, of what, uh, what is being talked about. So I was very happy to do that. Um, Leon Battista Alberti, um, interesting guy. Um, I actually named my studio here in Florence, Studio Della Statua, named it after the, the, this book. Um, and then the book I'm working on now. Well, this is, this is my magnum opus. This is the book that I started in 2008. It is a translation of the first biography of Francois Rude. Uh, well, no, it's not. It used to be. Uh, it's evolved since then. So for years, I thought, okay, I'm going to publish a translation of this very obscure book that I found um, that details step-by-step step the, the working process of Francois Rude, who I mentioned is the father of naturalistic sculpture, the guy who sort of invented um, a body of technique that is very, very related to what I now teach. Uh, but it's evolved because uh, there is no decent biography of Francois Rude in English. There are three or four written in French. Um, so I've spent uh, most of my idle hours during the pandemic translating uh, French texts and, uh, and writing a commentary to uh, the earliest biography of Rude. Um, but uh, it's, it's more than just a biography. It is uh, an exploration of his uh, technique, 
Um, there's a step-by-step -step process included into this uh, original biography that I'm translating, but I'm also writing a commentary to sort of explain the context and also explain the, uh, um, the sources for uh, Francois Rude's change. You know, why did he decide to sculpt differently? Francois Rude was a Prix de Rome winner. He was, he was a darling of the Parisian uh, sculpt, sculptural scene when he was you know, in his mid-20s. Why did he then decide to throw away everything he learned at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts? Uh, then it was the Ecole Nationale. Uh, and, and, and develop from scratch in isolation for 12 years, a completely new approach to sculpture. Why did he do that? How did he do that? What were his sources? Uh, and so this is, this is something that's never been recorded in a book. No one's ever really studied Francois Rude's technique. Uh, and when I saw this in 2008, it's like, oh my gosh, this book needs to be written. And that's what started the podcast. And of course, the podcast got in the way for five or six years. And now it's only during the pandemic that I can actually have the free time to get back and, and actually do what I set out to do over 10 years ago and write this damn book. Wow. And uh, hopefully it'll be done in a few years. Wow. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. It is, it is a big, big task. Wow. Um, talk a little bit about your teaching method. I, I was reading... Uh, and I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Ecorche or Ecorche or? Ecorche. Ecorche. Um, yeah. That it seems like you got three different methods of um, sculpting or teaching sculpting. You got the Ecorche classes, the quick sketch, and the more detailed classes. And I thought, wow, this is really fantastic because when I teach painting, one of the things that I try to drum into my students over and over again is that it's better to do a painting a day than try to do this one long drawn out thing because you'll learn so much more by starting new ones yeah. than beating one to death that you're struggling with. Uh, but I just thought it was real neat. Those three different types of classes you taught, could you speak on those and then segue into the um, seminars that you do or uh, workshops that you do of in the United States and in the rest of Europe. Sure, gladly. So, okay, so the three different types you're talking about are actually um, kind of different areas of sculpture. So écorché, what that is, écorché anatomy. Uh, écorché is the French word for flayed, right? So if you skin something, that, that thing you've just skinned is now écorché. And so if you've ever seen sculptors or even painters uh, construct in clay, uh, a figure, an anatomical figure, muscle by muscle. And so the skin is all removed and it's just the, the figure without skin so you can see all the muscles. That is what an écorché is. So it's a, it's a fantastic way to teach human anatomy, right? So that's a, a study unto itself. Now, then I, I, I also teach um, just my, my regular standard uh, site size method, either doing portraits or figures. Um, and I've talked a little bit about what site size is. And then you mentioned the other one, the composition course. This is, this is something I'm really proud to, to have uh, because I don't know of any other sculptor who teaches composition. There are painters who teach composition and that's fine, but painting composition is not sculpture competition, uh, composition. And, and, uh, and uh, it's a mistake to assume that they have much to do with each other at all. Unless you're talking about a relief it, it is a different animal. And so I teach the history of sculpture composition, starting with figure, single figures, uh, the history of single figure composition, history of double figure composition, uh, getting into um, various aspects like uh, significant objects, props, uh, drapery, bases, um, uh, genres of pose. You know, we're all familiar with the idea of contraposto, right? We know what that is, where you put your weight on one leg and that kicks your hip on one side and then you lower your shoulder on the opposite side, opposite side and you get this nice S curve in the back, right? Most people are familiar with the idea of contraposto, but how many people know la figura serpentinata, which is another pose type that was very, very popular at different points uh, of, uh, of art history or talking about what a, uh, what a victory group is. Uh, you know, these are genres of sculpture that, uh, um, have developed and you know there there as you know there are no real hard and fast rules of composition there are things that are tried and true 
and you can use them or you can discard them. You can try enough things and enough people try enough things and they're successful in the same thing. Sometimes it gets a name like Contraposto, right? And so, so I, I, I approached the history of composition uh, by tra tracing the development of, 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 of composition. So half the, half the course is actually me lecturing. Uh, the other half is having students develop compositions on their own based on what they're learning, uh, right in the class uh, in wax, doing small, you know, maybe three, four, five inch figures uh, in wax. Uh, they can make little figures that you can easily bend and pose and change and manipulate. They don't have to look good. The idea is not to produce a nice looking sculpture, but rather to understand how to design in three dimensions. Um, and uh, I don't know of anyone who's teaching anything like it, um, sadly, uh, but, uh, but there it is. Um, along those same lines, could you talk, you mentioned about relief sculpture being a completely different animal. And mm -hmm. that was going to be one of my questions. And I, you don't have to get too terribly detailed if you don't want to. But I was thinking that to the, to the uninformed viewer, they might would look at a relief sculpture and go, oh, wow, that'd be a whole lot easier because you're not actually in true three dimensions. You're just uh, have a raised relief depending on how far you bring it out from, from a relief on a coin all the way out to, yeah. um, I guess, something like would be on a stone mountain. Um, right. But I, I suspect that, uh, I mean, I sculpt, I do more maquettes uh, for, uh, illustration work and just for fun i paint all day and then at night when we're watching tv i sit and i've got a sculpting table in the in front of the tv so i sit there and sculpt um but i haven't done any relief sculpting so uh can you tell us a little bit about what would be the challenges that's real different with with relief sculpting that you don't get with sculpture in the round that might make it even more difficult that you're not even people don't even realize I can't remember what painter said it, but do you know the, the saying, um, painting is easy when you don't know how? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Relief is easy when you don't know how. Um, uh, and terribly difficult when you do. Yeah, so um, relief sculpture. Uh, I mean, there, you could talk about high relief and low relief. and. And there's a bit of a fuzzy border between that. But basically, high relief is just doing a figure in the round stuck on a background plane. Low relief involves flattening or compressing in some way the forms which you're sculpting, right? So if you're sculpting uh, a human, uh, you're not making the torso fully three-dimensionally round. You might you, even even just the front half of the torso, you're not doing that. If it's If it's fully projecting as much as... The real torso does, then it's then that's high relief, right? So compression of forms, um, flattening of forms, uh, is is required to to produce a low relief. Um, then there's a third type of relief called stacciato relief, which uh, was invented by Donatello, and uh, stacciato relief is a compression of forms like low relief, but done in a very very particular way. So if you have a certain object a model under a light source. You have a light and a shadow pattern, right? What Donatello did was sculpt a relief of that model under that light in a light and shadow pattern and compress his forms in such a way that even his compressed forms cast a light and shadow pattern in his sculpture identical to the light and shadow pattern found on the fully three-dimensional model. Does that make sense? Yes. Wow. Right? And so what that does is provide a much greater illusion of depth than it had ever been achieved before, right? So the Parthenon relief freezes and that sort of thing, the, the metopes and all that sort of thing, those are low relief, right? They're flattened forms, but they're stuck on a background plane. Uh, Donatello effectively erases the background plane. It just becomes an infinite background like you see in a landscape painting, right? And so there's this amazing... Uh, illusion achieved in stacciato relief that had never been achieved before. And it's very difficult, very few people uh, attempt it, but you can most commonly see it uh, in your pocket. Most coins are sculpted in stacciato relief. When you see like a nice portrait head, uh, you know, on a, on a coin, 
hold it up around various uh, sort of raking lights. At a, at a certain point, it'll become so fully three-dimensional, look beautiful. And that's probably going to be the same light relationship that you're achieving with that coin as the sculptor, him or herself, worked that coin, right? So, so it's it, it's it's a neat illusion, but it's it's tricky because you gotta you gotta you gotta view the finished work under the same lighting conditions under which it was sculpted, right? Because it's entirely dependent on the light that hits it. Um, uh, well, so yeah, I really, it, it, I, huh? I really appreciate hearing this because I, honestly. Uh, this was something, you know, anytime you're interviewing people, you try to actually know roughly some of the answers so you can go on. Uh, this was something I had absolutely no idea uh, right. what would be the challenges. I, I assumed that there had to be, but I had no idea. And just listening to you talk about the, the three different kind of various uh, genres of relief and I can see where it's just it's a subject that has no end of depth to it yeah. and challenges and I'm certainly no specialist in it I, I don't do reliefs often and when I do I'm, I'm really never satisfied with what I produce um, but uh, but yeah there are people who, who do nothing but that you know? do you do much animal sculpting at all no, that's another that's another thing I don't uh, delve into do too deeply. Certainly not professionally, uh, simply because there are people who devote their entire careers to uh, to animal sculpture or numismatics, medallions, medals, that sort of thing. Um, and um, and so I, I I dare not compete with those people who can do it ten times better than I ever could, unless I wanted to change my entire focus of what I do. But so I I, I like figures. I'm if I'm a specialist in anything, it might be portraiture, especially portraiture in marble. So there are a lot of um, a lot of people who know how to carve marble, and a lot of people who know how to do a nice, beautiful clay bust in clay, uh, but few who can do both. And it's necessary to do both. If you want a beautiful marble bust, uh, first thing you need to do is produce a good uh, clay bust because. When you, when you create a marble sculpture, and this is something a lot, not a lot of people know about, but basically 99 times out of 100, any marble sculpture, any figurative marble sculpture you've seen is the result of a clay model being made first. It's a rough draft, right? You can make your mistakes in clay and fix those mistakes. When you get the clay looking exactly like what you want the marble to look like, then you merely copy your clay. Um, and this, is, this goes back to the Greeks and you know, was revived in the Renaissance and has been with us uh, through today. So two completely different skill sets, modeling in clay and carving in marble. And uh, there are relatively few people who do both. And so that's my specialty. If you want a portrait in clay, or I'm sorry, portrait in marble, I'm your guy. And is it a whole different mindset doing subtractive as opposed to additive sculpture? Or is it just that it's unforgiving if you, knock off a nose, then uh, that's going to be more difficult to repair in stone than it is in, in clay. Yeah, people often ask me, what happens if you knock off a nose? And I say, well, that's when you know that you're a painter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but the truth is, by the time you're getting your big lump of rock down to the point where it starts to have a nose protruding a little bit, you're powering down your chisels and your methods and your hammers, right? So you're not gonna, by the time you're getting a sculpture to look like it has a nose, you're not going to use hammers and chisels in a way that takes off the nose entirely. You know, uh, any, any catastrophic failure is gonna happen fairly early on, right? Uh, and it's usually gonna be a fault in the stone itself rather than operator error. Uh, marble takes a long time for a good reason. You're, you're removing very, very small bits. You know, uh, when you're an inch away from the surface, which might sound close, but if you think, if you cover your face with an inch of clay, you're going to end up with a sphere. You can't see anything. You don't see eyes. You don't see mouth. You don't see nose, right? An inch is, is, is a tremendous amount when you're talking about an inch of material on a sculpture that needs to be removed. Um, so by the time you're an inch away, you're, you're, you're using... Uh, hammers and chisels in a way that won't split the whole thing in half. You know, after all, it is a rock. Uh, 
uh, any change to that rock involves, you know, quite a bit of uh, power. And uh, as long as you are mindful of what you are doing with every stroke, you're not going to make mistakes. It's 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 much less risky than it first seems. Okay. All right. Well, that that helps to sort of demythologize that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I, oh I yeah. That- I can- I can teach anyone to carve marble. I actually have a student who comes down from the UK every year. Uh, every year there isn't COVID. Uh, she's uh, maybe 100 pounds soaking wet. She's uh, approaching 80, and she's in there carving marble all day, and she can get it done. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, I do know that marble can be repaired. I mean, in some respect, because I know the the Pieta was repaired when it was dynamited years ago, uh, and I know that there are you know, people who can uh, glue things back together, but I'm sure that that's a whole lot of time and expense in and of itself. Um, sure. I see one question. Uh, can you talk about, as far as I would be concerned, the mind numbing experience of sanding? You know, any <laughs> of the sculptures I do, I try to make sure, mostly I work in sculpting, which uh, for those who don't know, that's just, uh, a relatively new uh, substance that it stays uh, pretty much permanently malleable until it's uh, cooked in the oven or baked in the oven. And uh, it's, it's the industry standard in the uh, special effects movie industry. And it's just a quick down and dirty way to sculpt. Uh, but whenever I do them, I try to make sure they're as smooth as I want them to be because breaking out that sandpaper Oh my gosh, it's just mind-numbing. Is there some trick to it that I don't know? Well, I I can't say I'm 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 too proficient in sculpting. Um, uh, before uh, before sandpaper, you might want to try a solvent, perhaps, um, when you uh, uh, sort of repair or chase or refine work in wax, for instance, if you're going. Uh, to cast a work in bronze, it needs to be uh, cast or sculpted in wax first. And what you can use in wax is any sort of solvent like turpentine or some people use uh, lighter fluid even uh, to sort of melt the surface. And then you use an abrasive uh, sort of scrubby or something to smooth things down. Um, but in terms of um, marble carving, uh, no, it's, it's all elbow grease. Uh, it's, it's not for the it's not for the timid, <laughs> uh, but the thing is you can get a, uh, even with a hammer and chisel, um, you can get a smooth surface from a hammer and chisel. Uh, most of the sanding might just be uh, done to take away the bruising that occurs. You see, when you carve marble, you're not actually cutting marble. You're, your chisels aren't as sharp as wood chisels. And when you carve wood, you're literally slicing little bits of wood off, right? When you're carving marble, you're using a chisel to break and smash the material in a very controlled manner, right? Marble is crystalline. And when you, when you hit it with a chisel, you're breaking some crystals. Uh, and it might even be a smooth surface, but uh, there might be some bruising, which is basically just broken crystal on the surface that creates a discoloration. And so all you're doing when you're polishing marble, even down to a mirror polish, is you're just removing layers of fractured crystal to reveal unfractured crystal. And that's where you get the luminous glow of marble. Okay. Uh, and so, yeah. Maybe, maybe that's where I got a, a little confused. I, I think when you were talking about Michelangelo, and I believe you were saying that it took him a year to sculpt the Pieta, but then it took him another, another year, year to, to polish it. It's like, yeah. no, homie ain't playing that. So <laughs> um, I, I just, that's where I wanted to ask about the whole polishing uh aspect well if you want to make a masterpiece of sculpture you got to put in the time you know one one year of your life is a small price to pay to be able to bruise the pieta i would think um very uh, it's 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 not it's it's not slow there are no shortcuts and he might have been doing other things you know uh when he was polishing that thing but i mean basically the pieta is michelangelo's most highly finished and most completed sculpture that he ever did uh, and it's not small. I mean, there's a lot of drapery. You had to get in, you know, and he's doing it all by hand uh, using uh, sort of um, what we would think of as fairly rudimentary abrasives, abrasives. You know, he didn't have sandpaper. 
he had cloth and then he would put uh, Tripoli sand, you know, basically sand from the beaches of Tripoli in North Africa, because it's a very sort of particularly abrasive sand. And he would, he would use that. I mean, that's, that's, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we have it easy nowadays. We could even use machines to do some polishing. Right. When you're talking about the curves, you know, inside a nostril, you're not going to get up there with a grinder and, you know, that's all going to be hand polished. Um, so, um, so as much as I like to demythologize the heroic and monumental nature of sculpture and sculptors, I mean, there, the, you know, there's, there's that element of truth behind those, those myths that it is, you know, it, it is, it's a lot of work, you know, yeah. and, and, and a lot of patience, you know, it's, uh, it's well, a demanding taxing. I want, I want you to toot your own horn here. I read on your website, you said you are the only American with a, a sculpture on permanent display. Is it an outdoor permanent display uh, in Florence? Uh, yeah, you got to have all those, you got to have all those adjectives or else the whole thing collapses like a house of cards. So I'm, I'm the only American, living or dead, who has a permanent a uh, monumental size marble sculpture on the cityscape of Florence. So it's, it's on the facade of a church. Yeah. Yes. Uh, life -size, slightly over life-size marble statue of St. Mark um, occupying the, the niche on the facade of St. Mark's uh, English church. It's a, an Anglican church here in Florence that serves the needs of the English speaking community here. That is fantastic. Yeah, I, loved your, I loved your quote uh, and I won't read it, I've got it in front of me, but you talked about um, your, your love of commission work and that you're not necessarily interested in expressing yourself per se, but you like the collaborative aspect of working on commission, which I can really much, again, relate to because in my 30 year career, I've been mostly either a portrait painter or an illustrator. I do gallery work and I sell gallery work but I work a lot on commission and uh, I really liked what you had to say. So could you share a little bit about that with our listeners? Sure. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, uh, of um, making sculpture and just sort of putting it out there and hoping someone comes along and buying it. I'm not a fan of the gallery system. Uh, I think it's too anonymous. You don't know who's buying it. You don't know why they're buying it. Um, I'd rather make something perfectly suited for a client. So commissions are the way to go. And I see every commission as a, as a bit of a collaboration between the client and myself. Um, I want to be able to give someone what they want. Um, and if my work can even be useful, that's, that's even better. So I'm a big fan of uh, funerary art. Actually, I do, um, uh, quite often I do, uh, uh, sculptures for tombs and you know funerary monuments and that sort of thing public monuments um, because it serves a need someone needs to you know has a need to memorialize or remember or commemorate a person or a, or a time or a place uh, and I, I love that aspect I love that my sculpture that my art can be practical um, and uh, yeah in terms of self-expression you know um, um, there's nothing wrong with it. it and it's, it's, it's just not necessarily what I'm attracted to. And I think I uh, sort of take my first impulses from the fact that I got involved into art through theater, which is uh, a communicative um, narrative storytelling uh, type of, of art. You know, you're telling a story and the story is the important thing and how you express it is the important thing. And then of course, after, after a, a, a show in the theater is done, it literally doesn't exist anymore. It's kind of one of the things I hated about theater. Um, you know, that, that you, know, you put in all this work and then it just evaporates into, into memory. That's all you have left is the memory. Um, uh, but sculpture, um, you know, so, 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 I, so I, I prefer to tell stories and craft stories with my work. Uh, in terms of narrative and allegory. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I don't need to express myself about how, I mean, how I feel about things will come through in, in, the, in, the, 
in the choice of stories that I choose to tell uh, and in, in the way that I choose to tell them. But I don't feel like I need to speak about me myself. I think there are a lot of amazing stories out there. You don't expect authors to only write about, you know, or to only write memoirs and biographies and base everything they write off of their own personal experience, you know? Right. Um, yeah, you know, there, there are a lot of amazing stories out there. So I, I, I'm just a storyteller in, in my work. Right. And I will uh, tell the, the listeners, um, we don't have to get off on Cellini, but on episode eight, you talk about yeah. Cellini. And I will tell you, if uh, you guys don't listen to anything else, go to episode <laughs> eight. Cellini is absolutely chilling. He's like the Hannibal Lecter of the art world. And uh, what is really interesting is you give a uh, do a one man play um, yeah. using a, what I felt like was a Brooklyn accent. And as I was listening, because I've worked in the theater, especially through my son, who's who works a lot in theater. And uh, as I was listening, I was thinking, yeah, this guy's had to have had some training in the theater. It is it is wonderful. That was just a fun thing to listen to. Yeah, on it's a lot of fun to of do. The chilling Cellini uh, uh, history. Yeah, it's a terrible human being, but a pretty good sculptor. Yeah. Um, and uh, let's see. Oh, I wanted to ask this because um, I will say that the digital world kind of wrought revenge for visual artist painters like myself on photographers because uh, we had the golden age of illustration in the between about 19, some could argue the 1890s, uh, 1880s, but all the way up to say around 1930 or 40, uh, with the 20s, 30s, 40s being really in many ways the golden age of illustration. And then we were decimated by photography. And photography reigned supreme until the 2000s. And then the digital world came in and just decimated photography. Well, sculpture kind of, for better or for worse, has sort of been a little bit off to the side. It hasn't been affected totally by the technology, at least as far as I could tell. But now, in the age of 3D printing, that's, that's a whole game changer. And I mm. was wondering, do you find that as either a potential threat or maybe a potential opportunity for sculptors, just like casting would be? Or is it even something you think about one way or another? Yeah, no, it is something I think about a lot. And uh, no, I, I don't see it as a threat, um, just as painters shouldn't see photography as a threat. It, it's a tool. Norman Rockwell used photographs quite often when he painted, right? When he, when he made his illustrations and, and it made his work, you know, he, he, he found it worth doing, right? So, um, 3D printing and scanning, that is a fantastic tool because right now, uh, currently and for the last millennia, if you're a sculptor and you produce something uh, in clay and you wanna save it or reproduce it in, a, in a, a final material like bronze, you have to make a mold, right? Which is a negative, just like a photography negative. And from that one negative, you can make many prints of a photograph. From that one mold of a sculpture, you can make many casts. And so when you finish a work in your studio, you make a mold, you make maybe make a cast in plaster just to have it around, or maybe you take it off to the foundry to produce in bronze, but then you still have the mold and you have to put it somewhere, right? And so in larger sculpture studios, like my own actually, I have um, a lot of space dedicated simply to mold storage, right? Because if I ever wanna produce another version, another copy of that sculpture again, I have to have that mold. No mold, no more sculptures. So 3D printing and scanning, what you can do instead of making a mold, you can scan a 3D image of your sculpture. And instead of having an entire room dedicated to storage of molds, which actually break down as well. I mean, a typical rubber mold isn't gonna last longer than a decade or so. Instead of having an entire room dedicated to that, you just have a thumb drive, right? And not only that, you can print it in any size or scale you want. You can edit it on a, on a laptop. You can, you can change it, you can alter it. You're not locked into that original form that you started with. So it's got tremendous 
potential that, that sculptors today are taking advantage of and have been taking advantage of for, for a decade or so. So it's not something that's going to come along and replace sculpture because you still need to make the original in some sort of material. Now, yes, you can scan anything you want. You can scan a human being. And if you think that uh, the apogee of sculpture is to produce something that is uh, indistinguishable from a human in real life, well, then that's, that's your thing. But uh, sculpture is an art. It's not about producing uh, an exact copy of what you find in nature just like painting isn't, and just like, frankly, photography isn't, right? There's a lot of art that goes into changing the mood and the atmosphere, uh, and even the, the point of view, the perception of the object in a photograph is manipulated by a photographer. Uh, so 3D scanning only gets you that raw material of you know exactly what you find in nature and doesn't sort of apply any art for you. You still have to come along and and change it, manipulate it, and, and, and put your stamp on it, and, and, and draw the focus where it needs to be. There's, there's so much more that sculpture is capable of that a 3D printer, you know, and scanner system can, can produce. So certainly not a threat, absolutely a tool. I think in generations to come, people won't be making molds as often as they'll just be scanning and storing that file and, uh, and making it easier making it cheaper uh, and making it more um, accessible, right? There's a problem with, with sculpture and painting as opposed to all the digital media that we have. And this has been our problem for a century is that you can, you can distribute a film and millions of people can all see it on the same day. You can put something on Netflix or on television or you know, on Spotify and millions of people have instant and free access to it. Painting and sculpture, not so. You can show photographs of paintings, you can show photographs of sculptures, but it's not painting, it's not sculpture. But if you're able to put a sculpture on a digital file and send it across the world for someone else to print up and actually have physically in front of you, that is a democratization of the experience of sculpture that has no parallel in the history of art, right? So that, that's, that's something that's really exciting. You remember 20 years ago when people were all up in arms about Napster? the file sharing uh, website application where right. people can suddenly download any song they wanted for free. And people thought, oh, that's gonna be the end of the music industry. Um, and what it did was actually, it was a boon to the music industry, you know, because people were exposed to more types of music than they could ever possibly pay for. And then they choose, chose to, you know, pursue with their pocketbooks uh, avenues of, of music that, that they might never have known about. Uh, imagine, imagine a sculpture Napster. Imagine people collecting files of sculptures, whether it's originals or maybe you know scans of the classics, uh, and and you know printing out a little tiny mini museum of their favorite sculpture in their house. Right? That would it would it would enable people to pursue a casual interest in sculpture the way they can't today. You know, right. you want to go see a sculpture, you got to go to a museum, you know, and the only people who go to museums and galleries are museum goers and gallery goers. And that's a tiny fraction of the of the population at large. So right. I, I, I see it as a, a furtherance of the democratization of art. Um, this kind of segues into a question I was thinking about. Um, I mean, I know how to make a living as a painter, but as Tell a me. sculptor. <laughs> as a sculptor uh, I mean I know some things like again I've said I work in the movie and film industry so, or TV industry so I know uh, you can do I do digital special effects but you can also do um, uh, what are called practical special effects so you're building uh, 3D models and then same thing in the uh, uh, theater and of course in the toy uh, development industry uh, you know, they need sculptors there to sculpt the sure. little action figures and so forth. Um, sure, collectibles are a big market in sculpture. Yes, yes. And, you know, I can think of ice carvers and, and some other things, but um, okay, you got someone who's uh, got a teenager who wants to be a sculptor and mom and dad show up at your atelier and say, okay, that's all well and good. How can little Juan or uh, uh, Luigi 
how are they going to make a living um, in sculpting? So All right. can, can you give us some? Yeah, yeah, I, I got an answer for this. Because um, uh, I get asked a lot. Um, so I know a hundred successful artists and they're all successful in their own way. So if you think you're going to be able to plug yourself into a system where all I need to do is go to this school and get my degree and then I become a sculptor, or all I need to go do is this atelier and put my time in at, at this atelier and then come out and then, you know, apply to the right, you know, competitions or, or exhibitions that I'm going to be an artist, right? Every artist I know who is successful is successful in their own way because they followed their interests and their strengths, right? So if you think you can look at anyone else uh, who is successful in art and say, well, I'll just copy their career path, unless you're exactly like them, it's not going to work for you. You need to know who you are as, a, as an artist, what you like, what you want to do. If you don't want to be spending your time producing anonymous, small standing bronze nudes, pretty, pretty little ballerinas and dancers and otherwise anonymous, nameless uh, nudes, then don't pursue the gallery system because that's what sells, right? If, but if your thing if like what you want to do is like, oh yeah, I'm all about the, the little nude ladies. Uh, I could totally spend my career knocking those out. Then yes, then the gallery system is for you, all right? So you need to find out what your interests are and of course what your strengths are uh, and then go with that. And if there is no market that is obvious for your interests and strengths, frankly, all the better. It means you don't have any competition. You could be the person doing what you do and have no competition. And then you need to develop your market because every, every artist needs to develop their market. You don't walk into a marketplace and just be like, okay, everybody, I'm here. Who's, who's first? You know, which client is going to be the first one? No, you have to develop a brand that is absolutely personal to you. You have to develop your market. Um, and I know that sounds very terrible <laughs> and crappy and like, oh God, it's a business. And yeah, it is, it is. You know, if you want to make money, you have to pay attention uh, to some extent to that sort of thing. But if you don't follow your interests uh, and your strengths, then um, uh, you're doing yourself a disservice. So my interests, uh, you know, early on, I, I, I saw myself as a, as a purist. You know, I'm, I'm in the city of Michelangelo. It's like, I'm going to do marble. I love marble. Actually, even before I became a sculptor, I was working construction as a stonemason. So I had a, an attraction to stone and hammers and chisels, and I love that sort of stuff. And so it's like, okay, great. That's my interest. Uh, I also happened to go to a school, Charles Cecil Studio, where the specialty uh, is portraiture. If, if you want to be a, a portrait painter in oils, Charles Cecil is one of the best places to study on earth. If you want to be any kind of other painter, any other kind of painter, then it might not be the best place because it literally is focused on nothing but portraiture and oils. So um, I combine my interests and my strengths and my my uh, and so I'm a I'm a portrait sculptor in marble, you know. And and there are very few people who do what I do, um, and even fewer who do it as well as I do. There so, you go. So, so yeah, so you, so that's what I would tell anyone, um, you know, don't, you know, at, you know, to, back to your, you know, to the, to the parents of Luigi, they're asking me how their son will become an artist. That's entirely up to him. It's entirely up to him. He's gotta, he's gotta be, gotta, he's gotta um, be brave enough and be strong enough to pursue his interests and his strengths, uh, despite of, despite, despite of the fact in spite of the fact, and, and actually because of the fact that no one else is doing what he's doing, you know, you need to make your own way. Yeah. Um, I guess this is really one of my last questions uh, that I just have on hand. In episode 23, you talk about inside the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. And okay. uh, I mean, I've always loved their work, but uh, the work of the 19th century, but I had no idea how prodigious their memories were. I knew just in my reading and other lectures I've listened to, people would talk about that they had, you know, great capacity for memory in the 19th century. 
But when you talked about that those sculptures that we see now, that we go, okay, well, yeah, they're beautiful and all, but those were actually created strictly from memory that you were saying that they had to do their sketches, they would be put away in a vault, and then they do all of it from memory, and then it would be compared later to those sketches. Um, now, they weren't any different than us. So obviously, they were doing some things to build that memory, muscle memory or memory muscle. What mm -hmm. do you have techniques? And correct me if I was wrong on any of what I just said. That's what I, I, I think you I actually think you might be slightly misunderstanding. So so, uh, yeah, in the in the concourse for the Prix de Rome uh, at, at an initial stage, they were given a, a theme that they had to develop a composition on, right? And then they would make a, a small clay or wax sketch of that composition. Then they had to realize that same composition on a larger scale, um, but they could use models and that sort of thing. So it wasn't that they had to reproduce exactly their sketch, obviously, because you know those sketches needed to be done in a single day. So they weren't detailed. What they had to remember was just the pose, the composition how far the head was turned, where the positions of the arms and legs were. So it wasn't as though they produced a sculpture in a day and then months later had to produce an exact copy of that same sculpture. Rather, they, had, they were locked into their initial idea of composition. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes. So, so yeah, they might not have had even fingers on the hand, but the hand better be in the same place as it was in the sketch. Okay, well, still, that is... That's a tremendous amount of memory work that's involved. Well, um, if you know it's coming up in the Prix de Rome, and if you know that the Prix de Rome can set your entire career in motion, you're going to work on that. Did, do you have exercises that you put your students through where uh, they build their muscle, their, their memory muscle? Well, uh, I mean, just the practice of sight size actually does it uh, to some extent, because uh, with sight size, I mentioned that there that there's a, a reliance on a certain observ, uh, relation of, of uh, a spatial relationship in, in the studio. So you've got your model, your live model across the room. Your work, if you're working on a smaller scale, is going to be maybe five or 10 feet in front of that model. And then your point of observation, at which point your model and your sculpture are exactly the same size, is going to be you know, five feet away from your model. So anytime you're actually looking at your work or looking at the model, you're, you might be 10 feet away from your work, right? So you, so, so you're constantly walking back and forth and back and forth. I mean, you could, you could literally cover miles in a, in a single session, uh, constantly going back, you know, sometimes you don't even stop. So what you're doing, you're coming back to your point of observation where everything is one-to-one, -one, right? You're looking at your work, you're comparing the model, you're deciding what to do. Then you actually walk towards your sculpture. And when you get there, then you have to make those, those changes. But you, it doesn't behoove you to then look at your model at that position because then you're, you're much closer to your clay work than you are your model. And so things are gonna be out of proportion. So you can't really utilize the model very fruitfully uh, in a lot of circumstances when you're actually in, close enough to your clay to, to change, right? And so you have to have a memory of being back at your point of observation, remembering what you're gonna work on and, and, and what, what shapes you're trying to go for. You go up to your figure and then you work for maybe two seconds, maybe two minutes. And then you come back to your point of observation and check. You know, there's always, um, there's constant, you know, confirmation of what you're doing. So you're, you're walking back and forth and back and forth constantly. Yeah. So in that sense, it does build memory. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I love about doing this program is that, um, you know, I'm in my studio working. And so I work usually about 10 or 12 hours a day. And I just come in and I have podcasts and things like that on while I'm working. And it's very exciting. It's very fulfilling. As a matter of fact, um, the one you did on... Um, Rude, I believe, with the um, Arc de Triomphe. I was yes. I was actually working on an illustration painting oh, cool. of that, and so it was so cool to be sitting there doing that. And then I realized 
you were doing your lecture on it, but it's easy, as you could tell from some of the questions that I've asked, it's easy to misconstrue or uh, just not quite understand totally what's uh, the train of thought that the lecturer is doing. And so it's so fun to actually talk to that person and sometimes, you know, you know just get a Q&A and sometimes kind of get your thoughts corrected or put back in, in, in into a, a straight line. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we have been going for almost two hours. Yes, this we have. Been, this has been absolutely delightful. And Wonderful. I, I, I would, <clears throat> I wanted to ask you, was there anything else that you wanted to share with the listeners? I'm actually going to break this probably into two uh, episodes because it's so rich and wonderful. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share with your listeners about yourself, your work, how to get in touch with you, anything? Uh, well, yeah, you can always uh, get in touch with me. I'm very approachable by email and all that sort of thing. Uh, JasonArkles.com is my website. Uh uh, you can always reach me through that. Um, and if you're interested in taking uh, lessons, uh, you, you actually asked me, I'd, one of the few questions I didn't answer was about my, my travel workshops. In, in days of non-COVID, I uh, spent several months a year giving workshops all over the world, Australia, New Zealand, uh, the United States, uh, Great Britain. Um, and when I'm not doing that, I am happily ensconced in my studio in Florence in a beautiful studio uh, in a Renaissance palace right on the river, right in the center of Florence. It's pretty amazing. Um, and you can always come and join me here and uh, take uh, private lessons from me. I don't teach regular classes. Uh, I don't have like a regular you know, academic year or anything like that in my studio. I only do uh, private and semi-private uh, lessons. I find that much more rewarding and enjoyable and I think the students do too. So if you have a hankering, come out to Florence. I'll teach you how to sculpt in the city of, uh, of the Renaissance. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you for being on the show. Thank My pleasure, really. I've really enjoyed it. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you guys for listening. I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm the Arthropologist. If you enjoyed this episode of The Arthropologist, there are more episodes on YouTube. To see my work, you can visit my website, BillWilsonStudio.com, where I have my books, prints, and originals for sale. I am a portrait painter and illustrator, and there you can contact me about commissioned work. I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm the Anthropologist.